Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Joining us today is Kevin Sagala, the founder and CEO of Tilting Point, a leading, award-winning, free-to-play games publisher with over 80 game titles under one roof through strategic partnerships and acquisitions. Kevin founded Tilting Point in 2012, and the company has since grown to a staff of hundreds worldwide with major locations in New York, Barcelona, Kiev, Seoul, Miami, and Vancouver. Prior to Tilting Point, Kevin has also built multiple other businesses in entertainment and digital media, one of which included the Connecticut Film Center, which was responsible for bringing over a billion dollars of motion picture and television production to Connecticut, housing over 50 productions. Welcome to the show, Kevin, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. Absolutely. We love to start out every podcast asking our guests, what games are you playing right now? I'll tell you, I'm a sucker for our own games. Uh, yeah, we recently released SpongeBob Adventures, uh, which is fantastic, and I've been jamming through that. <laughs> it's actually nice. SpongeBob Adventures in a jam. Cypher 007, it's the only James Bond game out on mobile, and it's a great game. It's super fun to play. Right now, I'm playing Whiteout Survival, which is really phenomenal. I love the way it starts you off with this casual gameplay, and it starts to get deeper and deeper, but it does it in a way that really makes it feel good, and you're happy as you get deeper into it. For you personally, what games give you the most joy on that R&R sort of relaxing standpoint? What games genres have you gravitated to? over the years to just de-stress and chill? Sure. I tend to like to play more casual games. My days are anything but casual. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like constant work and fun. But when I want to unwind, it's playing something that's casual and doesn't take a lot of mind power. <laughs> gotcha. Kevin, with the casual games that you enjoy playing just to kind of rest and relax, which genres of the mobile casual have you enjoyed the most? I enjoy the city builders. And it's just fun to see yourself progress. Yeah. And which games did you grow up playing? What games got you into gaming in the first place? I aged myself because the first game I ever played was Pong. And I was amazed. I'm like, I can control my TV. This is crazy. And that was an opening for me into games. And I had my Atari 2600 and played all those games. And so my early years were the early years for the video game industry. That's awesome. That interaction of like controlling the TV, that must have been just a total paradigm shift for the consumer. It it was really mind boggling. You never thought of this concept of being able to control what was on your TV. There was three channels. That was it. And you were going to watch one of those three channels. All of a sudden, you could be controlling what you uh, see on the TV. How social were those early days of gaming for you? Gathering around Pong, was it passing the controller from person to person? Was it solo experience at the arcade? What was that like? 
I had a group of four friends and we would just get together and play at home. And of course, I was in arcades all the time as well and playing arcade games and starting with pinball. Yeah. <laughs> and then things like Asteroids and everything else at the Defender were games I played a lot in the arcades. And where'd you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your personal background before launching your career. Sure. I grew up in D.C. and I was in the city and it was a great place to grow up. And it was really what sort of brought me into the world of entertainment because this is when I first experienced a video camera and still photography, just got completely obsessed with it. As a matter of fact, more obsessed with filmmaking than with games at the time. But that was what brought me into the entertainment industry. And then before we get into the gaming stuff, let's talk about that chapter of your life with the entertainment industry. What brought you into being an independent film producer? Were you just watching lots of movies or were you building cameras yourself? Were you messing around with independent films on your own? How did you get into that? When I was like 14, I started in school. They had a great video camera. I played sports and they were shooting all of our practices and our games. And I'm looking at the camera and it was this big camera. And I'm like, I want to get behind that camera. That's super cool. And so I started making little short films and I knew by the time I was 16 that I was going to go to film school and I was going to be in the film industry. And that's the only thing I wanted to do, which is interesting because I went to school to learn film production. I didn't take any accounting classes, any legal classes, any business classes, any marketing classes. I left school with absolutely none of the experience that I take to my businesses today. And I, so I had to learn all that on my own. <laughs> yeah. What was one of your favorite and earliest independent films that you made, either as a teenager or as a college student? Out of school, I made a film called Whatever that Sony Classics released, and just a great film and super low budget. I think we shot it for about $120,000, and it was a big shoot. The total budget ended up being somewhere around six or 700000 and then we sold it for a great price to Sony. And it's still a great movie. And it really it was a period piece. So it took place in 1981. And I think we did a great job of capturing the time period. You sold it to Sony in what year? And did that sort of launch you into Connecticut with a Connecticut film business that you built? Out of college, I worked at HBO and at Nickelodeon, A&E. I was primarily producing on-air promos. And I just realized I wanted to start my own businesses, build my own career. And so I decided to start a production company. And the first thing that we were doing was basically going to HBO and saying, hey, look, you have this shoot that you're budgeting for $250,000, and we can do the same thing for $125,000. And so I'd get all my friends together, and we would make that happen and deliver the product to them. And so I was able to build up the production company very nicely. But my goal was really, I was doing TV stuff, and I'm like, I want to make movies. And I'm not going in that direction. How do I get in that direction? And so I started directing and producing short films. And me and my partner in that company, we did 13 or 14 short films and film festivals everywhere and made a little bit of money on them. Not much. It was mostly a labor of love, but it was what gave me the experience to move into features. And then the features that I did were almost all low-budget indie kind of art house movies. I was in the New York scene, the New York indie scene. It was a lot of fun. It was very hard to make money. <laughs> and ultimately, for me, I was saying I love 
producing. I love working with the writer and the director, rewriting scripts. And this is all very creative and cool, but it was, it takes so long to make a movie. And I'm pretty hyperactive and I needed more action. I was like, okay, there's more that I can be doing. And my skill set, my business skill set isn't being used to the best of, of its ability. And that was when I made the decision to sell my production company and to start something new. So you didn't study business and you went into film school, but you had this innate gravity towards starting your own business. And then you had this feeling that the business side wasn't being used as, as best as it could be. How did those two come together? It's almost like you just had this innate entrepreneurial spirit about you. How did you realize that? Because that's different than a lot of people that go into maybe the training that you went into, but then you started your own film company. I've actually always been an entrepreneur. When I was in third grade, I was selling Krispy Kreme donuts before they were famous. I was selling them door to door and I would have them deliver 60 dozen on Saturday and I'd be walking around carrying, it was like six dozen at a time and I'd knock it on everybody's doors and they knew I'd be coming and they were buying them and, and it was a great little business. And from there, I started a whole bunch of little entrepreneurial endeavors like scalping tickets. And I did really well with that and like, eighth and ninth grade, making thousands of dollars. And so I have a natural affinity for entrepreneurship that just was in my blood from the beginning. And the business aspect of it, I think I had all of the instincts. I just had none of the education going into it. And when I started my production company, we were a couple of years into it before I said, hey, we should raise money to make our first feature film and let's raise a whole bunch so we can make a bunch of movies. And so I, we put together a big business plan. I get a call from a potential investor and he's, this is all great. Can you send over your balance sheet? And I'm like, balance sheet, balance sheet. What, what's a balance sheet? I got to figure out what a balance sheet is. I mean, I knew nothing about the, the core things that you need to know in running a business. And I just had to learn all that stuff along the way. But it was a lot of fun learning and I'm still learning every, I think I learned more today than I've ever learned in my life. Like I'm constantly learning, you know, and if you're open to learning and open to everything that's out there, you can, you can do really well. I always like to say that I can learn things from the smartest guy who's the most experienced ever, but I can also learn things from interns that are working with us. And if you have that attitude, I believe that you're always going to improve yourself over time. And so I'm always working to be better at what I do. Really cool to hear. Before we jump into Tilting Point specifically, tell us about the process of selling your first real business after you found out what a balance sheet was. You raised all that capital, you built this business. And tell us about the process of selling that business and moving on from that first great entrepreneurial chapter. I wasn't very experienced. And so it wasn't the best. Essentially, what we did was sell different projects. So I was developing a, a, a lot of projects at once because that was just in my nature, working with some incredible directors. And so then it was figuring out, okay, where do we lay these off? And it was important for me to clear the deck because I knew I had my next endeavor. And frankly, when I went about the process of stopping producing, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But what I said is, before I do it, I'm going to make sure it's something that I'm super passionate about and that I know I can make work. And it took me over a year of mulling different business ideas. And, you know, I'd done some real estate development in Soho on the side when I was producing, and it was way more financially uh, beneficial than making movies was. Uh, and I'm like, wow, I can make a lot of money in real estate. And I'm like, okay, so I know real estate. 
I know the film industry. I know people in the film industry. How can I combine those two things together? And then ultimately I said, I got it. I know what I can do. We can get a tax incentive passed in Connecticut and we can bring many movies into the state. And then we will do a couple things for them. Number one, we'll provide them facilities. Buying warehouses and converting them into sound stages was our business model. Doing it for the studio. So Sony says, hey, we want to shoot this show and this is what we're going to need. And so I'd work very closely with them to build it out the way that they wanted it built out and they would pay for it a lot of the times. But also the other thing that we were doing was financing the tax incentives that they were earning in the state of Connecticut. And that turned into a really big business for us that we've done across the U.S. with different states that have tax incentives, where essentially we're funding this tax incentive for the studio and contributing a pretty big part of their budget. And when we started Connecticut Film Center, the six months before we started Connecticut Film Center, there was $750,000 of production in the state. And in the six months following the start of Connecticut Film Center and of the tax incentive, we brought in $300 million of production to the state. So there was a massive change. There was movie shooting everywhere. We had our first movie shooting with Uma Thurman the day that the incentive took effect. So our business just went gangbusters from the very beginning. And I had a great partner in Bruce Heller. He used to run Billy Bob Thornton's production company. We had done our senior thesis in college together. We knew we could work together well. So I was like, hey, come and join me. So between his contacts in Hollywood and my contacts in Hollywood, we were able to get in front of the right people to explain to them the benefits of shooting in Connecticut. And what year is this right at this point? We founded Connecticut Film Center in 2006. And very quickly, we started to acquire properties as we had the demand for those properties. And I found a great real estate partner, an incredible developer in Connecticut, partnered with him because I didn't know about these sort of very large warehouses and and industrial complexes that we were buying. And we started buying them and it culminated with us acquiring a million square feet right in downtown Stanford. And it was just this massive 32-acre property that Procter & Gamble was using to make shampoo. They moved away to Mexico. And this place was just sitting there, and we got an incredible deal on it. And today, that's the world headquarters for NBC Sports Network. And on the other side is Chelsea Pierce, Connecticut, which is indoor sports facility that came from New York City. And the one in Connecticut in our building is just the most beautiful sports facility you've ever seen. And so we have NBC Sports and the sports facility. And then in the basement, we have the hospital for special surgery doing all their diagnostics. So that was a great deal for us. That's awesome. And then a few years later, you decided to either sell or exit that business. Tell us about that process. And then as we shift into how you came up with the idea of Tilting Point, what was that transition like between maybe 2008 and 2012 when you launched the company. What happened in that period? So actually we didn't sell the business. We still have all of our facilities. We sold a few that just made sense to sell and we had great offers on them, but we still have all our facilities and real estate is a nice business. I don't run any of it anymore. My partner is running, I have a real estate partner and I have my partner on the film finance side. And so we're still doing big movies where we're providing the 
the tax incentive financing for them. And that generates a lot of cash. And from 2008 to 2012, we were generating so much cash with this business that I said, you know what? I'm ready to diversify. I I like to do different things and I'm not sure where I want to diversify. So I started doing seed stage investments and a round investments into different startups. And through that, I began to learn a lot about tech and I learned a lot about digital media. And then I made an investment into a video game developer. And my eyes went wide because I had no idea how big the video game industry really was, much bigger than the film industry, and how much opportunity there was. And then I'm looking at mobile and what mobile is doing. And I said to myself, you know what? This is where my career is going to go from here. It's still entertainment. It's about content. This is stuff I understand. And so I was able to take that understanding and apply it to the video game space. Now, I didn't start Tilting Point right off the bat. We spent about a year studying the market, trying to figure out what's the right business model, what fits in with my sort of core business beliefs, something that I think can make work, something that's differentiated from what other people are doing. We spent a lot of time studying models, meeting people, meeting developers, meeting the big publishers, and ultimately landed on a mobile game publisher. And this was really in 2011 and that we made that decision. And we didn't actually fully incorporate until 2012. So we always say that's when we started. But 2011, we were out there and really figuring out mobile game publishing. And I can tell you, everybody looked at us cross-eyed saying, mobile game publisher? I just got away from EA. We started this company. We're making our own games for mobile. We spend $500,000. We make a game. We release it. We get featured. We make millions. Why the hell would I ever need a publisher? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I get that. Sounds like you're making easy money. And I know that whenever there's easy money to be made, people are going to pile in. And I was like, yeah, there's some mobile games now. There's going to be a lot of mobile games. I had no idea there would be like, millions of mobile games made over the years, but I knew there would be a lot. And I knew that developers would have to be able to differentiate themselves, right? And developers would need marketing. Commonly, we'd hear from developers, we don't need to market, it goes viral and doesn't cost us anything. And I'm like, yeah, it would be the first industry in the history of industries that didn't need marketing. Everybody needs marketing, and you will ultimately need marketing. And that was an important part of our offering at Tilting Point in the early days. Who was we in that equation of researching it, launching it? What was the team that you had around that? And who worked on this with you to get this thing ready to launch? Sure. The first person that I hired was Dan Sherman out of EA. He was working at EA Partners, a fantastic deal maker. And he and I then built a team around, which started with six or seven people. And for a while, we were in that sort of 15 to 20 people range before we got our legs and figured out how we could best uh, pursue this market. And as a business builder, how did you overcome the criticism of hey, mobile publishing, that's a crazy idea that's completely brand new. Nobody needs that kind of help. Things are going viral on their own. Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs that we invest in and that are out there today in the games industry are equally with crazy ideas of this is where the world is going and I'm going to push through this 
one to six year uphill battle of flack that I'm going to get from the world. How did you get through that period when it wasn't so obvious that mobile game publishing was going to be a thing? First of all, it takes a really strong belief in what you're doing and it takes perseverance. And in this case, it took a lot of perseverance on our part. But then what's the actual thing that you do to get people to take notice, to get developers to want to work with us? And in the earliest days, it came down to one thing, and that was money. Hey, we're going to fund your game, the development of your game. And out of that came Leo's Fortune, which is still one of my favorite games. It's I, I love this game. It was uh, Apple Design Award winner. It was the runner-up game of the year behind Monument Valley. And that never would have happened if we just said, hey, we want to be your publisher. Give us a rev share. And we're not sure, or you're not sure how we're going to be able to help you. We, in the early days, had to come in and say, look, we're going to help you get this done because we're going to put the money in to get it done. And then we're going to be partners. And did you primarily put the money into the development or also the go-to-market? Because today, it's sort of both or maybe just even the go-to-market. They'll come to a launch game and say, hey, we'll live ops a little bit, but we'll really fund your UA go-to-market side in a big way. It sounds like it started on the dev side. Yeah, it started on the dev side. And as we built our chops on the marketing side, we would invest more and more on the marketing side. But we were not an instant marketing powerhouse, right? We had to develop that over time. But it sounds like it wasn't even a need at that point. You didn't need the marketing side as much because the studios weren't asking for it. They were asking for the funding help on the dev side. Help me build this, right? They were asking for the funding help, but also for guidance and best practices and market insights. These are all things that we had because we were talking to so many developers out there and looking at so many different games. And we still do today, which is our biggest strength is we really understand the market. We were able to bring some best practices and some ideas to Leo's Fortune really stem from an idea that we were thinking about in-house and took that and developed that together with the the group that that actually did the work to make it. <laughs> yeah. And after building Tilting Point for the last 11 years, if you were to separate it into chapters of the companies leveling up, right? The first level of getting off the ground, the second of scale, the third now of growth, right? How would you break that down looking at the last 11 years? And we'll talk about the future in a second, but really looking at the chapters of this company as you've built it, what do you think about the most? How do you bucket that in your mind? In building any company, it's super important that the entrepreneur is always looking at where things are going to go and trying to be there when things get there. And for us, we achieve that being in the right place by adapting and by adapting quite a bit. When we look back at Tilting Point, I think we did six adaptations of our model along the way that all were additive for us and all were reflections of the market and reflections of the direction that we felt the market was going. And so I can tell you in the early days, we were doing all premium games and a lot of people were doing all premium games. And then the prices went from $9.99 to $5.99, $2.99, cents. How are we ever going to make any money on this game at 99 cents? And then free, free. How does this work exactly? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And but pretty quickly we're like, wait, where did all of our customers go? Where did all our gamers go? They went to the free games. And I think there was a realization within the industry, actually gamers are the ones who drove the free to play model because they demanded the free to play model. That's what they wanted to play. 
as we recognized that, we said, damn, we better get some free-to-play shops. And that was a big change to go from premium to free-to-play because it's 10 times more complicated to to build a free-to-play game with a balanced economy, with live ops and all that stuff. And that's when I brought in Samir Rajili from Gameloft. And Samir was one of the top guys there. He was head of North and South America. And I think he founded nine studios within Gameloft. And bringing him into the equation was really great because his experience was phenomenal. And he came in and helped us build out our free-to-play chops so that we would understand that better. So that was our first big adaptation. But along the way, we did other ones. There was a point where we said, you know what? It's very hard for us as a publisher to choose a game that's still in development and know that game is going to work. Because at the end of the day, no matter how beautiful a game is, no matter how fun a game is to play, if your CPI is higher than your LTV, you can't scale that game. And so just looking at a game and playing a prototype of a game isn't going to give us the information that we needed as a publisher. And everything that we do is data-driven. So we said, we need to start working with only live games. Games that are already released on the market where we have data, we can look at that data and we can know where we can be beneficial to that developer. And so that was a big change as well. Those are monumental changes in the gaming industry that happened very quickly. You mentioned that 1099 to 299 to 99 cents. How fast did that happen? And then how fast did you make the switch from, okay, we're just going to work with free-to-play games to now we're only going to work with launched free-to-play because we need some data to analyze what's a good game that we should pour capital and energy and time into. The move to -to free-to-play happened pretty quick. And I can tell you of our six times that we've done major adaptations of our business model, that one was the latest, meaning that one took the longest. And so over time, I've learned, and I'm still, as I told you, I'm, I'm learning all the time. And I learned over time, you better adapt more quickly. You better be really reactive to the market and you better be able to prognosticate the future of the market. And so that was the worst one for us. And so uh, we were probably a couple of years behind where we should have been. So it was 2015 before we really had any significant free-to-play chops. What are those six adaptations? It feels like you do know what those moments were. Can you walk us through that? We adapted from a premium model to a free-to-play model. We adapted to picking up live games. And then developers were saying to us, wait a minute, I funded this game, I developed this game, I took this game to market, and it's doing well, and now you want to take a revenue share on it? Like, why? So it was a little tricky to get the best games. Like, how do we get these guys to come in and work with us? We know we can help them, but we have to convince them of that. How can we convince them? And I remember the day, one day I'm sitting in the office with my C team and I'm like, all right, what is it that these developers really need that we can provide? And Asi Burek, who's our amazing uh, chief business officer, said they need money to scale their games up. And I thought to myself, we could do this. We can provide funding because we know the data. We know when we spend a dollar, when that dollar is going to come back to us. We know how much profit we're going to make on it. And so we can fund this stuff. And sure, it was the first user acquisition fund in the industry, still with unique characteristics that I don't know that others really do today, which is we were willing to fund out. Like we were willing to say, okay, 
we're looking at what your revenues are going to be 12 months from now. And we're willing to fund knowing that in 12 months, that money will come back to us versus saying, hey, we're going to fund your receivables, which is what a, a lot of them that are out there do. And the UA fund was very successful, so successful that we expanded it. We went out, we got a credit facility and we expanded the user acquisition fund so that we could spend up to $132 million a year in user acquisition. And that's where we really started to see a lot of growth. And that growth enabled us to build more and more internal resources to help game developers. And then to not just work with them on the game that we started, but to say, okay, you have a great game. We're working with you and we love your team. You guys are super talented. You're easy to work with. Your tech is great. Let's make another game together. And that's how we started to get into first party by saying, you know what? We are going to figure out the right game to make with them. We're going to bring an IP to the table, a licensed IP to the table to make it easier to market and make a new game. And we will own it together. And those studios were primarily studios we were working with previously. So when you got into first party, most of those groups were groups you already had a relationship with in their prior game, usually. Yeah, if going into a co-development with a developer, we wanted to have that experience first of working with them. And one of our adaptations was to build this model that we call progressive publishing. And the idea behind progressive publishing was go out there and find these hidden gems, small games, but that have the data that tells us we can make them into big games. Go out and find them, start working with them on user acquisition, start managing their user acquisition. As we build trust with each other, get into a deeper relationship where we're providing them much more in terms of publishing services, everything from platform relationships to and anything that would really help them to make their game bigger. And we'd become much more their publisher along the way. So that's the second part, right? We get deeper into publishing with them with the goal to ultimately make a new game with them and then to acquire them. And so progressive publishing was about how do we get to first party games? How do we get to great acquisitions? How do we do great co-developments with developers where we're together participating in the upside of the game? And progressive publishing worked really well for us for a number of years, but ultimately the market has changed as we all know, and we had to adapt with the market and change with the market. And so that takes us very naturally into today, right? Today, before we talk about a few key trends across mobile, what is Tilting Point today? What is the current strategy today as things have changed in the market, especially in the last couple of years? What is the current focus for Tilting Point today and the differentiation between good and great publishers in the mobile landscape today in games? Let me answer the second one first. What differentiates publishers out there? And I don't think you can be a great publisher unless you're really good at working with developers, working with third parties. And that's a delicate balance because you're working with a creative entrepreneur, a creative genius, you know, and what we want to do when we're working with somebody is enhance their creativity, enhance their business. And that's a fine line between getting in the way of a developer and being able to help a developer. So you can't be a great publisher unless you're able to work well with developers and add real value to them. On that point, what are some of the ways you can get in their way? What are the things you try not to do? Yeah. <laughs> Tell them what feature sets they should make. <laughs> 
Got it. <laughs> I mean, we can say, look, there's a lot of games that are doing this and this. But at the end of the day, if you fail to recognize that a creator is really needs to do their creation and paint their painting, then you will stumble because they will be building something that they are not completely bought into because, oh, the publisher said I had to build it this way. And that's problematic. Our job is to find great developers, great creative geniuses and entrepreneurs and support them. If they're great and if they have successful games, they know what they're doing. Even with publishing, you have to be careful about every aspect of the way you work with that developer. And the more successful a game, the more likely they are to have a really strong publishing team together with their development team. And if they have that, then we say, what are the ways that we can still impact? They have a great publishing team. How can we still impact them meaningfully? And so our model has changed to make sure that we focus on the things that we can do that are harder for even a successful d developer to do themselves. And I'll give you some examples. Distribution. Uh, you have a developer, they make a game, the game is successful, they're on uh, Apple and uh, Google on Android, and, and they're doing great, and they're making money. And it's complicated for them to start thinking about alternative platforms that are out there. But there's a lot of alternative platforms. And you can go on to an alternative distribution platform, and it might boost your revenue three, five percent. But if you do that across five different platforms, then you've made a significant difference in your revenue and your profitability. But it's complicated to do that, right? And so we have a team that's dedicated just to doing that and helping developers to get that done. Then when it comes to things like platform relations, we touch so many games and we know the platforms very well. And so we're able to help them with that. IP has become more and more important over the years because it's so hard to get any kind of visibility out there in the market. And a really strong IP can help you a lot. But the truth is 95% of all the IPs out there that people look at for, for, for licensing are not going to move the needle to properly utilize IP, whether it's for an, an integration into an existing game or it's a whole new game based on that IP. The first thing that you have to do is study every single IP that might make sense and figure out which one is the best, right? And that's a skill set that we have that a developer is not going to normally have in-house and the ability to close a deal with a licensor. And again, we probably have more licensed IP games than anybody in the world. Everything from SpongeBob to Bond to Star Trek and Narcos. And we work with amazing brands. We're doing a huge deal right now uh, with one of Netflix's biggest shows, which isn't announced yet, but it's one of their biggest. Exciting. When it comes to the future of the free-to-play model, if we can go there for a second, you were there before free-to-play was a thing with Tilting Point. And then free-to-play emerged as a business model for the mobile games industry that is absolutely proliferated in past games to other things. What is coming up next for free-to-play? And how is this business model evolving now in good or bad ways for probably a few parties, one gamers, two the developers, and three for publishers. Listen, we're in interesting times and tumultuous times. The market has changed pretty drastically, and it started with IDFA. 
self-deprecation. And I always like to say there's four headwinds that, that we've been facing over these last uh, year or two. Obviously, the IDFA deprecation reduced efficiency by 15 to 20% on user acquisition. And that caused a huge problem, particularly for small developers. And so that's been a major headwind. The post-COVID drop The COVID bump was real, but post-COVID is real too. And we're dealing with that. And we're dealing with a macro economy that uh, around the world is struggling a bit and there's less disposable income for people. So these are all, all headwinds that we're facing. But another headwind that we're facing is the free-to-play model itself. You know, free-to-play model came about and everybody loved it and people would spend money in it and somebody would go into a game, they'd get to level 10, they'd hit a pinch point, they'd spend 10 bucks. They'd get to level 25, they'd hit a pinch point, they'd spend 10 bucks. They'd get to level 35 and hit another pinch point and they'd be like, you know what, I like this game, but it's not all it was. I don't think I want to put more money into it. And they go to another game, right? And this happens all the time, it's churn, it's, it's normal. But they go to another game and they do the same thing. And they do that four or five, six times, and they start to say, you know what, I'm going to be more careful about that first pinch point, that second pinch point, and and not spend my money. Because for whatever reason, gamers feel like the game should be completely free. It's like you're getting a lot of entertainment out of it, paying that 10 bucks. (laughs) Yeah. So what happens is free-to-play as a business model has gotten a little bit tired in its current form. And then you have whales that have been playing some of the deep games. And we have a, a one that's a very deep game. I won't mention which one. We have players that have been playing it for seven years and spent massive amounts of money in the game and spent massive amounts of time in the game. And they built themselves up and they're the king of the hill. And one day they're saying to themselves, God, I'd, I'd really love to go play this other game, but I have so much invested in this game that I feel like I can't leave this game. I got to keep playing this game. And then they're trapped in that because, and that makes them unhappy. And what we don't want is unhappy gamers. So I think free-to-play isn't as fulfilling for gamers as it used to be, but I think free-to-play is still, still the model, don't get me wrong, but I think that ultimately the industry has to make adjustments to the way that free-to-play works that are an answer to the issues that gamers have. And, you know, when I think about Web3, I look at it and I say, this in each of these companies participating in Web3 are not listening to the gamers. They're not doing what the gamers want. You need to listen to what the gamers really want. And so what we saw was a lot of businesses that were built around play to earn and speculation, right? And speculators are different from gamers. And yeah, there's some speculators in the world. Sure, and you can make money off them. That means they're losing money, by the way, when you're making money. But that's not our industry. And so I started telling my guys, hey, we need to focus on the two and a half or three billion gamers in the world. That's what we need to focus on, not on a few people who are, by the way, the same people who bought GameStop at $500. (laughs) (laughs) And this isn't a business about speculation. This is a business about fun. As we evolve the free-to-play model, it has to evolve in a way that gamers want it to evolve. And gamers are going to be the ones that push the evolution. The same way they pushed us from premium to -to free-to-play, they're going to push us to what I consider the next iteration. And for me, I believe the next iteration is the only DAO I really believe in, which is digital asset ownership. (laughs) And I've said it a million times. People want to be able to own the things that they build in a game, the things that they buy in a game. And by own it, I mean have the ability to sell it. 
And it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be about blockchain and it doesn't need to be about NFTs or anything like that. And it certainly can't be about speculation. It can't be about, oh, if I buy this, it's going to be worth 20 times as much because it screws up the economy of the games and then the games aren't fun for people anymore. But there is a model and I think it will evolve and we're not going to be the ones to evolve it. I think developers out there will evolve it and the gamers will push them to evolve it where people are given the ability to not just press the buy button, but also press the sell button. And my belief is that when people have the flexibility to know that they can sell, they're going to purchase more things in game. They're going to spend more money in the game because they know I can get this money out. And so instead of buying one sword, they're going to buy 20 different swords because they want to show up at the boss fight and be super cool and have all these different swords. And they know they can sell them back, get their money back, maybe make a little profit, maybe lose a little bit of money on it. And that will make them feel more comfortable about spending. So I believe that when the industry as a whole adopts this model, and it'll take a number of years for this to really come about, but when the industry adopts this model, we're going to see much higher conversion rates because more people are going to feel comfortable spending. And the people who do spend are going to spend more. And they might leave their 20 swords in that game and go to another game and, and buy assets in another game. I like to say it'll be, it'll be like the game industry has assets under management, right? Because they're giving <laughs> us their money and they are getting whatever item it is. And we're the shepherds of that whole thing. And when we do adopt this model, I firmly believe this is going to happen in the future. I think we're going to see revenues climb really significantly. So I'm super optimistic about the future. Do you think that the losers in that situation are certainly games and developers who can't adapt to that new model and are either trapped in the exhausted model of the penny pincher consumer who's aware that they're being penny pinched or the gamer that is bored because they have so much locked up in that game, which is a whale problem. So that's the 1% versus the 99%. Who do you think loses? Do you think that there's less developers in that vision? Do you think that the consumer is just going to have to pay more money? Not have to, but want to pay more money? What do you think shifts in the industry under that vision of the evolution of free-to-play mobile? Every time the industry evolves, and it's been evolving constantly, every time the industry evolves, there's people and developers that don't keep up with it and lose. And there's developers who take advantage of it and have extraordinary gains along the way. And so the same thing will happen. There'll be people who don't adapt and they'll be like me in the premium days where I'm like, wait, where did all my gamers go? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then they'll be behind because they didn't adapt quickly enough. And then there's others who are going to be like, oh, I see it and I'm going for it. I know where things are going and I'm going to be a pioneer we need pioneers. And the great thing about our industry is there's so many creative people and there's so many people who are willing to go out there and take the risk on something unique and different. It's important that we have that. And sometimes I feel like we lose that in the industry, but that desire and drive to create something that is new and unique to anything else. And it's harder and harder. I can tell you it's harder and harder for any game to break through today. So many smaller developers are struggling out there because it's just hard to break a game, particularly against the entrenched guys who have high LTVs that they've built over five years. And with that high LTV, they can outspend anybody in user acquisition, right? And so a new guy comes along and they're like, how can I possibly afford to pay this cost per install on this game? My LTV is not high enough. 
but those entrenched guys are high enough. And so it's tough times right now for smaller developers. Interesting. To close us out, what is exciting and on the horizon for Tilting Point? What are you most fired up about? What occupies your energy with the company? Whatever you're willing to share, we'd love to hear it. It's been a super exciting story to follow. We're in a great place right now at Tilting Point. We had to make adjustments and some of those adjustments were hard because our business model changed. We had to let some people go, which was unfortunate, but at the same time, built up other parts of our business where we could see this is where the most strength is. And today we're firing on all cylinders and we have a real focus on the games that we're making now as first party. So we have different developers that we own or that we are long-term partners with, and we're making some big games. And the SpongeBob Adventures we just released is doing fantastic. And we have a game coming out that we did with Tommy Hilfiger. It's a fashion game called Fashionverse. Super excited about that. We're deep in development on Avatar The Last Airbender, which was my kid's favorite show growing up. My favorite show, watching it with my kids. And now I'm making a game and my kids are like, that's so cool. And we all got tattoos. Well, you can't see because we're we're not on video, but me and my kids and my wife, we all got the airbender tattoos, the airbender, waterbender. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I'm so into that. So we're making that. I'm excited about that. So on the game side, that's what we're doing. We're making bigger games and we're putting more support behind those games that we make. And we think we're going to get some great results from that. At the same time, we've always been acquisitive. We've done eight acquisitions. We are working on some new acquisitions that, that you'll hear about over the coming months. And we'd like to do some bigger and better ones. We've done some phenomenal ones like Budge. Budge Games are the number one kids game maker in the sort of the two to eight year old range for mobile. And they're also like us, IP driven. But we're going to do more as we go forward. And the last thing that we're doing, so we, we have three areas. We have acquisitions. We have the bigger and better games that we're releasing. And the last part of it is we're building a platform that we think is going to be very powerful. It's a cross-promotion platform. It's the antidote to the issues of IDFA. It's a way to do much cheaper user acquisition. It's a way to raise the LTV of of all the players that are part of the platform. It's going to drive our first-party games. We're going to bring in great third-party games. We think it's going to be very powerful for the industry and will be a great model. And it's not going to be the only platform out there, but what we think what we're doing is very unique. And we have that kind of skill set because we've worked with so many developers out there. We know them and we know what they need and we know what the issues would be. And so we're uh, super excited about that. And it'll be a year before it's out to the, we've been working on it for quite a while, but it'll be another year before we're bringing third parties into it. That's super cool. Will that be primarily web-based or also native applications? It'll be primarily web-based and it'll work with all the, the mobile games and apps. It's a pretty unique model. We've been about user acquisition where we've got a phenomenal growth team. Our marketing is really, really strong. And so this is a natural extension for us, a natural way for us to help developers be more successful. That's super exciting. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. Congrats on multiple companies that you've built. It's truly such a cool experience to hear the history of free-to-play as it's evolved and everything that Tilting Point is doing. So thank you for the time and what you've added to the games industry has been impactful for millions of people through the games and hundreds of thousands of others. Thank you for having me on and talking to me about this. I love to talk about the game industry. I love to talk about Tilting Point, and I'm really proud of the incredible team that we've built at Tilting Point. It's a team effort, and we have so many people working so hard to make all the stuff I talk about 
successful. And uh, so I always uh, try to thank them as much as possible for everything they've done for us. Yeah, it's definitely a team effort. So congrats to the entire team at Tilting Point on everything you all have worked on, achieved, and very excited for this platform that's coming out. That's going to be super exciting and more acquisitions and more titles and more Airbender-like experiences. Thanks, Kevin. If you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you also like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our weekly newsletter at convoy.vc. Have a great week, everyone.